our previous episode. We explored the strange, imagined worlds of the American Jewish filmmaker Steven Spielberg and his iconic Holocaust movie Schindler's List. We talked about the hero's journey, the Hollywood narrative arc where a hero rises to a challenge, faces adversity, fights demons, and finally triumphs. As we discussed, it's a narrative arc that has almost nothing in common with actual murdered Jews. Today, we'll be looking at a different Jewish entertainer, a person who, in his own time and place, was just as big as Spielberg, his name in lights and on silver screens across countries and continents. Like Spielberg, the man we'll be talking about today was a proud secular Jew. And like Spielberg, he used that identity as the inspiration for some of his most powerful works of art. Like Spielberg, the public first fell in love with him for his lighthearted material before he applied his talents to something bigger and deeper. Like Spielberg, he chose to dramatize the Jewish experience, and that choice gave him the rare chance to become something much more than a showman, turning him into a mission-driven spokesperson for the Jewish people. Like Spielberg, he became a beloved international celebrity, traveling the world to raise global awareness about the situation of the Jews. And hundreds of thousands of people on multiple continents hung on to his every word. But unlike Spielberg, our hero's journey didn't end in a house in Malibu. That's because our hero lived his life in the Soviet Union, a place where the hero's journey rarely had a Hollywood ending. Today, I want to share with you the marvelous, beautiful, and terrifying story of the Soviet Yiddish actor Solomon Mikhoyles, a man who achieved what no modern Jewish artist before him had ever achieved, a man adored by millions, a man who had an entire empire at his feet, until that same empire decided to mow him down. I'm Dara Horn, and this is Adventures with Dead Jews. I first heard about Solomon Mikhoyles when I was in graduate school studying Yiddish literature, but not because his name came up in a book or a class. I heard about him because when you study Yiddish literature, you start getting invited to an annual event held in Yiddish-speaking circles around the world. The event is called the Night of the Murdered Poets. The Night of the Murdered Poets has been observed by Yiddish speakers every August 12th for the past 60 years. It's a kind of secular Tisha B'Av, the annual day of collective Jewish mourning for destroyed Jewish communities of the past. But unlike Tisha B'Av, the Night of the Murdered Poets is not a day of generalized grieving over multiple disasters. Unlike many of today's Jewish memorial events, it has nothing to do with the Holocaust. The Night of the Murdered Poets is extremely specific. It commemorates a group of 13 Soviet Jewish writers, actors, and intellectuals. All of them were employed by the Soviet government to create, promote, and protect Jewish culture in the Soviet Union. By 1949, 
all of them were arrested and accused by the Soviet government of participating in a Zionist plot to destroy the Soviet state. All of them were imprisoned and brutally tortured for years. On the night of August 12, 1952, all of them were executed by firing squad. In case you were wondering, there was never a Zionist plot to destroy the Soviet state. Oh, and a spoiler alert. Solomon Mikhoyles wasn't one of those murdered poets. But the thing is, you can't go to a Night of the Murdered Poets event without hearing about Solomon Mikhoyles. Solomon Mikhoyles was intimately connected with every one of those executed Jews, and their connection to Mikhoyles ultimately led to their deaths. In my book, People Love Dead Jews, I examined the life of one of those murdered artists, the Soviet Yiddish actor Binyamin Zushkin. He's a perfect example of this. In almost every one of Zushkin's roles, he performed alongside Mikhoyles, with Mikhoyles directing him. They weren't just work colleagues either. In the drama of their lives, both on stage and off, Mikhoyles was the director, and he was the director of the other victims too, even the ones who weren't actors. That's why his name always comes up on the night of the murdered poets. He didn't die that night, but his fate was bound to theirs. Today, we'll explore what happens when a great Jewish artist tries to save the Jews and thinks that everyone is on his side. Unlike Spielberg, Michoels was trying to save Jews who weren't actually dead yet, which is why he turned out to be completely wrong. The story how I got interested in Mikhoels is a little mystical story for me. It's a personal experience, not just a research topic. That's Vasily Shedrin, a postdoctoral fellow at Queen's University in Canada. He has spent the past several years writing a biography of Mikhoels. Shedrin explained to me that in Russia, Solomon Mikhoels isn't at all an obscure Yiddish actor who's only remembered by arcane experts. He's a major name in the history of Russian show business, like a Russian Charlie Chaplin or Humphrey Bogart. It's a part of the Soviet culture. He was in the major Soviet movies like Circus and others. So people often mentioned him, and he's a part of the Moscow theatrical culture. He's not a part of some small segment of the ethnic culture just the Yiddish theater. It was the major Moscow theater. He held all the honorary titles awarded only to the top talents in the Soviet theater, cinema, and so on. Mikhoyl's path as an actor um, uh, was, um, it was a brilliant career. For Soviet Jews, who for decades had no way to express their Jewish identity, Mikhoyl's, the historic Russian entertainer, was something much bigger. Mikhoyl's, was not only a Russian actor. Generally, Solomon Mikhoyls was a part of Soviet culture, while for the millions of Soviet Jews, they were Jewish because they had Mikhoyls. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, Shedrin was part of the very first group of students pursuing Jewish studies in Russia after decades of anti-Semitic repression. Their first project was to comb through the newly opened state archives. And Shedrin's job, was to catalog the archives of the State Theatrical Museum. That's where he discovered 
a never-before-seen script of a play written by Mahoyles 70 years earlier. So it was my first archival discovery. It was my first personal encounter with Mihoyles. And it was personal. It's like the first hand because it's his text and it was written a long time ago, considered lost and so on. Hoyles wasn't the sort of person you might expect to wind up on the world stage. We don't know much about his early life, other than that he grew up poor in a shtetl named Vinsk, in a deeply religious Yiddish-speaking family, where he was one of nine children and also a twin. We know that he trained to be a lawyer at a time when that career was essentially closed to Jews. Then, with zero experience and essentially out of nowhere, he suddenly became an actor at the age of 29. And not just an actor, but an almost instant star. The year Mikhoyles turned 29 was 1919, shortly after Russia's Bolshevik Revolution and in the depths of its bloody civil war with millions dead, starving, or unemployed. It wasn't a great time to practice law, but it was an excellent time to turn the world upside down. One day in 1919, Mikhoyles was walking down the street and saw an ad on a lamppost for auditions for a new Yiddish theater troupe. Mikhoyles tried out and very quickly became the lead actor of the newly formed Moscow State Yiddish Theater. Yes, the State Yiddish Theater, meaning a Yiddish language theater that was entirely sponsored and paid for by the Soviet state. Wait a minute. During this time of revolutionary upheaval, mass starvation, and civil war, why on earth would the Soviet Union pay for a state Yiddish theater? Well, there are a few reasons, and those reasons are all either remarkably idealistic or remarkably creepy. First, the communist revolution was supposed to be all about the masses. And those masses included the many minority groups in the Russian Empire. Perhaps this was the new regime's idealistic attempt at diversity and inclusion. Or, more likely, the Bolsheviks weren't stupid. If they wanted to win their civil war, they needed those masses on their side, including millions of Jews. Yiddish was the language of those righteous Jewish masses. Sponsoring Yiddish culture was a way to spread the revolutionary message among the Jews. They were engaged in implementation of the Bolshevik policies called the revolution on the Jewish street. So cultural work, including theater, was the part of the revolution on the Jewish street. So through Yiddish, they translate the revolution to the Yiddish masses. Yiddish was the proletarian language. So Soviet Union maintained the existence of this Yiddish culture, including literature, poetry, publishing, and historiography. So yes, in the early years of the Soviet Union, the government went all in on sponsoring Yiddish culture. I mean, all in. By the late 1920s, 
The regime wasn't just paying for the world's only state Yiddish theater. It was also paying for Yiddish schools, Yiddish newspapers, Yiddish magazines, Yiddish publishing houses. There were even Yiddish literary critics who were salaried by the Soviet government. Jewish artists and intellectuals could not believe their good fortune. Some who had fled to Western Europe or America during the Russian Revolution even returned home. In 1926, the Yiddish novelist Dovid Bergelson published a famous essay called Three Centers, comparing New York, Warsaw, and Moscow, and debating which was the best place for a Yiddish writer. His answer was Moscow. Bergelson was not an obscure Yiddish writer. He was one of the greatest Yiddish novelists who ever lived, and he had tens of thousands of devoted readers around the world. By the way, remember the Night of the Murdered Poets? Yeah, Bergelson was one of them. In 1926, he was still on his hero's journey. That journey took him back to the USSR, where he began writing scripts for the Moscow State Yiddish Theater. All this probably sounds like the Soviet regime loved the Jews. Let's just say it wasn't exactly unconditional love. For one thing, when the Bolsheviks said they supported Yiddish, they meant Yiddish. Anyone attempting to speak, read, or study Hebrew, or to practice Judaism, or to support Zionism, became an instant enemy of the state. The Jewish sections of the Communist Party immediately shut down all traditional Jewish schools, yeshivas, Jewish community organizations, and Zionist groups, categories that covered everything from synagogues to sports clubs. They also arrested, imprisoned, exiled, and murdered Jews who didn't comply. The actors from Russia's renowned Hebrew theater, Habima, escaped to Palestine on pain of death. Then there's the way the regime wanted Yiddish to be used. The regime loved Yiddish because it was a way to spread Marxist ideology. So Yiddish literature and Yiddish theater had to tell stories about how terrible Judaism was, how evil Zionism was, and how disgusting traditional Jewish families were. Jews were awesome, so long as they complied. Fortunately, plenty of plays in the Yiddish repertoire had negative things to say about traditional Jewish life. So the Moscow State Yiddish Theater had no shortage of material. Also, the Bolsheviks were kind of busy back then. They didn't have time by then consolidating their power and waging civil war to control ideologically the repertoire of what, what, what artists do. So the government basically left the Yiddish actors alone, which led to some of the most magnificent artistic creations that the Jewish world has ever seen. The Moscow State Yiddish Theater productions weren't straight versions of classical plays. They were extremely imaginative avant-garde shows that used every creative possibility to immerse and surprise the audience. They did whatever they want. They were experimenting with the form of theatrical expression. So they tried to express theater in the most untheatrical forms, like the set design. Sometimes set design just frame the idea of the show. Sometimes they engage the audience. 
sometimes they design the entire theater building, including the hall, the stage, the foyer, to be a part of the show. So the spectators were introduced into the theater just by coming through the theater's door. And the show starts while they come in. So for the opening shows in Moscow, they invited Mark Chagall, who then lived in Moscow before he moved to Europe in 1922. So Chagall designed the entire interior of the theater. Mark Chagall didn't just create the theater murals and set designs. In some cases, he even literally painted the actors themselves, designing their costumes and makeup. While the theater often used material from the Yiddish literary canon, nobody felt married to the scripts. They also tend to edit the scripts of the classic shows. For instance, Yiddish theater of Michoels used classic works by classic Yiddish writers, Shalom Aleichem and Belemeher's Forum and Yudlamet Peret for their shows, but they edited the scripts to add new dynamics to them to make new stresses, to rearrange them. Those scripts were not the main part of the play, of the show. They were contributing in equal measure to acting and to set design and to costumes, to everything. The theater was a hit with its audience, which soon became international. They played to packed houses in Moscow and also on their annual tours of the Soviet provinces. And by 1928, they were touring Western Europe too. The shows themselves were elaborate and sophisticated. One memorable production was called At Night in the Old Marketplace, a play by the classic Yiddish writer I.L. Peretz. It's about dead Jews rising from their graves and joining the living. The play is very meta, The characters include a stage manager and a playwright trying to direct the cast. It's also very challenging. The script is mostly written in poetry, and it requires nearly 100 actors, a multi-layered set with built-in catapults, and also a remote-controlled rooster. It was considered impossible to perform, and no one had ever tried to stage it. The Moscow State Yiddish Theater pulled it off. Since it's a zombie story about the death of traditional Judaism, the regime heartily approved. The theater's production went much deeper than that. At a performance in Vienna, one theatergoer came backstage to tell Michoels and his colleagues that the play had shaken something in him that went beyond all imagination. That theatergoer was Sigmund Freud. The theater was so successful that Michoels started making movies. His biggest hit was a silent film called Jewish Luck, based on a book by the Yiddish writer Sholem Aleichem. The story was about a pathetic businessman's pathetic failures, so it was camera-ready for the Marxist regime. It was also packed with high-end talent. Michoels' performance was a star turn worthy of Charlie Chaplin. The cinematographer was film pioneer Sergei Eisenstein, the same person who made the iconic Russian movie Battleship Potemkin. While the movie was silent, it did have a script, presented in title cards during musical interludes. If you thought that writing title cards was a job for a lowbrow hack, 
Well, these title cards were written by the Russian Jewish literary giant Isaac Babel. Other movies followed, both in Russian and in Yiddish. There were some downsides to this Jewish artist's paradise that Steven Spielberg never had to deal with. For one thing, the writers kept getting murdered. By the 1930s, the Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin was busy murdering all the people he didn't like. There were a lot of Jewish writers he didn't like. One of them, the phenomenally talented and hugely popular Yiddish poet Moshe Kolbach, wrote a play about a Robin Hood-like bandit, a topic that not only pleased the regime, but also actually worked as a play. It filled the theater for months. Kolbach's success his regime-ready subject matter, and his willingness to conform to the party line all turned out to be very irrelevant to the firing squad that eliminated him in 1937. Then there's Isaac Babel, the major Russian Jewish writer who wrote many 20th century classics, along with those little title cards for Mikhail's silent movie. Babel was arrested that same year, then tortured and shot. Many Yiddish literary critics were also, as they say, purged. On the plus side, once Stalin murdered the Yiddish literary critics, there was almost nobody left in the Communist Party who could censor the theater's scripts. Perhaps you're starting to get a sense of the encroaching reality here. The sense of doom around the theater had actually set in almost 10 years earlier. During the theater's 1928 tour in Western Europe, its celebrated founding director, Alexei Gronovsky, saw the writing on the wall and defected to the West. His departure meant that the theater needed a new leader. That leader was Solomon Michoels. Michoels did not want this job at first, but soon he saw the potential. Once he took over the theater, he starred in the two greatest performances of his life, which audiences remembered for decades. One is Tevye the Dairyman from the stories by Sholem Aleichem, and the other, most famously, as King Lear. By then, Michoels was no longer just an actor, but a major public figure at the height of the Soviet elite. Something was changing within him, too. 
he had a sense that he had been cast in this role for a reason. And it had nothing to do with spreading Marxism. Instead, he had become a leader of the Jews. He was becoming a part of the Moscow theatrical elite. Uh, he was moving in the highest circles of the uh, top Moscow directors and actors. He was sitting in many Soviet and party committees on the theatrical art. What was motivating him at, at that time period was definitely not the Soviet and Bolshevik ideology, but as I think, it's the sense of a mission. He had this wider and broader leadership mission which he defined not in Soviet terms, but in Jewish terms. So he felt himself in charge of theater and in charge of the people. What did that mean, in charge of the people? Well, Mikhoyles was one of the most famous Jews in the Soviet Union, which meant he had access to scarce resources. Soviet Jews started writing him letters begging for help with everyday problems like getting medical treatment or better housing or admission to a good school. A lot of those problems were related to anti-Semitism, like discrimination at school or at work. It might seem crazy that people would write to an actor for help, but it didn't seem crazy to Mikhoyles. He actually responded. Soon, desperate Jews were lining up to meet him, and unlike most celebrities, he actually listened to them. His fellow actors reprimanded him, saying, you're forgetting about the theater. You're, like, the whole way next to, your, next to your office is just filled by petitioners all the time. You don't care about shows. You don't care about us. You're sitting in the meetings in the government, and then you're coming back and you're talking to the people and resolving their problems. What do you do for the theater? His hero's journey reached a turning point in the summer of 1941 with the devastating Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. Stalin mobilized all resources to turn the tide of the war, including the cultural elite. The regime created public anti-fascist committees, groups of highbrow celebrities whose job was to motivate the war effort and raise money for the Red Army from sympathizers overseas. There were only four of these committees, a women's anti-fascist committee, a youth anti-fascist committee, a Slavic anti-fascist committee, and a Jewish anti-fascist committee. The obvious person to lead the Jewish anti-fascist committee was the Soviet Union's most popular Jew, Solomon Mikhoyles. This was a critical and horrifying moment for Russia, but even more so for the Jews as the Nazis took over heavily Jewish regions like Lithuania and Ukraine. It was the beginning of what we now call the Holocaust. Mikhoyles stepped up to the plate. The Jewish anti-fascist committee's first meeting was broadcast on newsreels and on the radio, with impassioned speeches from Mikhoyles and other Jewish artists and celebrities. Mikhoyles was now the official leader of all Soviet Jews. Here's a bit from the broadcast newsreel of the committee's official formation. The time has come to fight. 
In this sacred struggle, the Soviet Union is uniting all people. Участники митинга обратились с названием к братьям-евреям во всем мире. Название подписали народный артист СССР Михаил, писатель Илья Эренбург, академик... Basically, he said that they are no longer the old kind of Jews. They don't suffer. We, we are the part of this wonderful country, and we want to fight for this country. Uh, we want the Nazi blood. We want to win this war, and we want to contribute to this, and we ask all Jews around the world to join us in fight. He became not in charge of the theater, and just mentally uh, of the Jewish people, but now in fact in charge of the Jewish people and not only in the Soviet Union, he made his choice to become a leader of the committee. It's devastating to watch this broadcast now. You see all these proud and empowered Jews triumphantly taking a stand to defend their people for the first time in thousands of years. They give their passionate speeches and then they each step up to the podium and sign their names with a flourish, pledging to follow Mikhoyles in his grand mission to save the Jews. When I watch that clip, I recognize all of the people because I've seen them all before. They're the people who were executed on the night of the murdered poets. None of them have any idea that they are signing their own death warrant. Mikhoyles would have been the last person to imagine that terrifying future because he was nearing the peak of his hero's journey. In 1943, the regime sent Mikhoyles on a seven-month-long world tour with stops in Mexico, the United States, Canada, and Great Britain. The purpose of the trip was to convince Jews overseas to donate money to the Soviet war effort. Because Mikhoyles wasn't actually a member of the Communist Party, he was sent with Itzik Fefer, a Yiddish poet who was a party loyalist. Needless to say, Fefer is also one of the murdered poets. After two years of leading the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, Mikhoyles suddenly had a chance to do something concrete and effective on the world stage to save the Jews. So Mikhoyles took off. He really was on the world stage during that tour. He met with major celebrities like Albert Einstein, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and his idol, Charlie Chaplin. His public appearances drew enormous crowds of American Jews. At the Polo Grounds in New York City, 60,000 people came to hear him speak. If you've heard episode two of this show, you'll appreciate that one of the other speakers at that rally was Rabbi Stephen Wise. At his rally in Chicago, Mikhoyles was so popular that he wound up with a broken leg. People wanted to shake his hand, to, I don't know, to touch him. So they climbed on the podium and the podium crashed and he broke his leg. On paper, the trip was a huge success, raising over $30 million from enthusiastic Jews around the world. There was something very weird about it and American Jews sensed it. Mikhoyles was an entertainer, not an ambassador. 
none of the other Soviet anti-fascist committees were sent on world tours. There was a layer of anti-Semitism baked into the entire enterprise. Similar to what we talked about on a previous episode with Japan's attempt to get American Jews to hand over their legendary Jewish money. This tour involved a similar manipulation. Jews who donated to the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee specifically wanted their money to be earmarked to help persecuted Jews. But that was not what Stalin had in mind. The Jewish organization who contributed money had a condition that the help would be distributed among Jews. Stalin's condition was that the help was given to the Soviet Union and distributed as Stalin sees it fit. Like those Japanese emissaries who went to America to make their case for that quasi-Jewish state in Manchuria, Mikhail's trip to America also involved a weird attempt to create a Jewish state. The American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, known as the Joint, met with Mikhoyles and pledged a large donation in order to create a Jewish autonomous state in Crimea after the war. The Joint had bought land for an independent Jewish region in Crimea back in 1920, but the Soviets had seized the property and the Joint lost millions of dollars. In the 1920s, the Soviets were touting their own bonkers Jewish state, a whole Jewish Soviet socialist republic called Birobijan. The problem with Birobijan was that it was on the Korean border, on unarable land with zero resources. So it was basically uninhabitable. Sending Jews there was one step short of sending them to Siberia. So the idea of a Jewish state in Crimea sounded pretty darn appealing. Mikhoyles wrote a letter about this idea to Stalin with the support of other members of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. That letter became one of many pieces of so-called evidence of treason that was later used to condemn the other committee members to death by firing squad. It all looked great from the outside. The celebrities, the money, the adoring crowds. The problem was that Mikhoyles on his world tour was actually a prisoner. The Yiddish poet and party hack Pfeffer was always with him, and so were dozens of other Soviet minders watching his every move. In that seven-month tour, Mikhoyles' only time apart from Pfeffer was when he broke his leg. While Mikhoyles was in the hospital, the American director of the Jewish Agency for Palestine seized the moment to sneak him out of the hospital for a secret meeting with future Israeli President Chaim Weizmann. According to rumor, Mikhoyles broke down during that meeting, revealing that he believed that Jews had no future in the Soviet Union and that he had a deep passion for the Zionist cause. Shedrin thinks that rumor can't be true. Not because Mikhoyles didn't feel that way, but because he would have known that his minders were still listening. I, I know this story, but I doubt that the Pfeffer was the only one who supervised Mikhoyles. Mm, uh, they were uh, escorted everywhere by Yevgeny Kiselev, Soviet Consul General in New York. And, and, and his 
like stuff. And that stuff was um, the state security agent. So I, I don't think that Mikhoils was ever left alone by anyone. So he should be careful at every step, at, in every room, everywhere. And then he well understood that. The most revealing story about Mikhoils' world tour on his mission to save the Jews isn't from his giant rallies or his celebrity hangouts, but from a single unplanned half hour of his trip. Because it was impossible to fly over Nazi-occupied Europe, Mikhoils traveled to the U.S. via the Middle East, stopping in Tehran and later in Cairo. On the way, the plane made a short half-hour pit stop at the airport in Lod, now called Ben-Gurion International Airport, outside of Tel Aviv. It was the closest Mikhoils ever came to freedom, and he seized his chance. Mikhoils reported to leave the aircraft and get some water from the kiosk on the flying field. And he left, he wrote a message to his friends in Russian and left with the guy who sold the water. And that message got delivered. The, the, the friends lived in a kibbutz near Tel Aviv. So we have this note. Dear Nina, Celia, Mendel, Mulia, and Rosichka and Lisa, I'm here for half an hour. I kiss you. Uh, this is it. Very short. Very, like, yeah. It, it says nothing. It says nothing. He's very, very careful. That's right. Yeah. When he returned from that trip, Mikhoyles was still playing the role of a Hebrew prophet, a Moses leading other Jews out of slavery and into the Soviet promised land. His greatest success story was probably his rescue of the renowned Yiddish poet Avram Sutzkever, who he managed to airlift out of a Polish forest in 1944. Years later, Sutzkever wrote about his encounters with Mikhoyles in Moscow. His memories reveal both the actor's power and what really mattered to him. Here to share those memories of Mikhoyles with us is Justin Cammy, who recently translated them for a book that's coming out next month. I'm Justin Cammy, uh, Chair of Jewish Studies at Smith College and the editor and translator of a new volume by Avram Sutzkever called uh, From the Vilna Ghetto to Nuremberg, Memoir and Testimony. Sutzkever is considered the preeminent Yiddish poet of the Horban of the Holocaust, at least from his community of Vilna. He was a Yiddish poet before the war, and by virtue of his reputation, he was rescued by the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee and brought to Moscow after the liquidation of the Vilna Ghetto. He spent a few months in the forest, about half a year as a partisan in the forest, and in March 1944 was brought to Moscow. Sutskever immediately saw the fatal flaws in the Soviet Union's support for Jewish life. He recognized very early on, because of the censorship that was going on and that he felt all around him, that the future of Yiddish and the Jewish people was not in the Soviet Union. Here's Kami's translation of Sutskever, as he remembered meeting Mikhoyles after he was rescued. Mikhoyles had asked Sutskever to send him a Yiddish translation of the Hebrew Bible, because, of course, the leader of the Jewish people had no access to such a book. He had a request of me. 
Could I do him a favor and send him a copy of Yehoyash's Yiddish translation of the Bible? In Vilna, it must still be possible to find such a Bible. His sentence ended with ellipses. I must admit that I understood the meaning of the ellipses only when I was airlifted out of the Narach forest and brought to the Soviet capital at the end of March 1944. Kami explained to me that Sutskever, writing years later from his home in Israel, was able to say what Mikhoyles and his fellow Soviet artists couldn't say about the limitations of their own leadership. And in all of these essays, he has moments where he's talking about how fearful some of these major writers that we see as the icons of Yiddish culture of the time, whether it be Markish or Bergelson or even Michols himself, how they're all having to look behind their backs because they're all about to be either betrayed by one another or by um, shadows that they don't even know about. Here's Sutskever remembering how Michols once asked him to write a play for the Moscow State Yiddish Theater. Michols turned to me and said, let's get to the point. I prepared a contract for you to write a piece for my theater. I've already talked it over with our administrator, Conrad Fishman, and he's also on board. Comrade Michols, why do you think I'm capable of composing a play? It's true that I've experienced quite a bit of drama, but unfortunately that did not transform me into a playwright. He was already putting on an act when he responded. What are you talking about? How do you know you can't write plays? Did you ever try your hand at it and fail? I am confident you can do it. Write me a play about Itzik Wittenberg, the commander of the Vilna Ghetto Partisans. Write it in the same way as you told us about at the recently at the theater. I can't get the scene with the bomb out of my mind, the one your comrades secretly assembled in the ghetto in order to carry out an act of revenge against the Germans. When you portray how your friend manufactured a bomb, think of the Maharal creating the golem. The comparison made an impact on me, and I began to shudder. The censor would never allow it. Michols broke into a fit of laughter as a result of my words, and suddenly his voice changed, his eyes sharpened and saddened. He leaned into me, and he explained, Avram, you're mistaken. Here the censor plays no role because a self-censor inhabits the mind of every writer. The censor has not yet made it into your head, and that's why you must get to work on the play immediately. Comrade Michols, let's say that I begin writing. How will this all end? The eminent Soviet actor provided me with some professional advice. The ideal end is death. In 1948, four years after his triumph in rescuing Sutskever, Mikhoyles reached the end of his hero's journey. I mentioned earlier that Mikhoyles wasn't one of the people executed on the night of the murdered poets. If you were hoping for that Hollywood arc of triumph over adversity, we should probably stop the story now. The story of Mikhoyles' life seems like one of astonishing accomplishment but only until the curtain is pulled back. The Soviets wanted Mikhoyles to perform in the Yiddish theater because it spread their regime's message. They wanted Mikhoyles to speak at Jewish rallies around the world because they wanted money to win the war. Mikhoyles so badly wanted the part he was playing as the leader of the Jews to be real. It never was. After the war ended, these Jews that Stalin had promoted to the skies to help the Soviet war effort were no longer useful. 
which meant, of course, that they were disposable. Mikhoyles was too big and famous for a show trial. So Stalin came up with a better plan. In January of 1948, he sent Mikhoyles to Minsk as a judge for the Stalin Prize. While he was there, he was invited to a colleague's house. Mikhoyles was murdered there, along with a man who had joined him on the trip. Their bodies were dumped on a back street in Minsk and run over with a truck. In Moscow, the huge celebrity Mikhoyles was given an elaborate state funeral, attended by well over 10,000 people. The murder of Mikhoyles was the beginning of the end of Soviet Jewish public life. The Moscow State Yiddish Theater was shut down a year later. By the following year, the rest of the members of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, all of whom had worked closely with Mikhoyles, were arrested. Then came their executions on August 12, 1952, the night of the murdered poets. As a Yiddish literature student attending commemorations of the Night of the Murdered Poets, I always marveled at what these Soviet Jewish artists had achieved. In their work, they reinvented what Jewish art could be. And in their activism, they called attention to Nazi atrocities when no one else did. And they even managed to rescue Jews like Sutzkever from certain death. But I also used to wonder how much these incredibly talented Soviet Jews actually believed in the regime they served. I wondered whether they were suckers or whether they were simply doing the absolute best they could for the Jewish people in frightening circumstances. I wondered whether they always knew that they were being played for fools. I don't wonder about that anymore because the most heartbreaking thing is that their opinions about the regime they served were utterly irrelevant. They weren't killed for being dissidents, but they weren't killed for being suckers either. To their Soviet overlords, they were simply disposable Jews. Despite the victim's journey that Mikhoyles traveled through his life, Shedrin sees him as an optimistic figure, a person who saw even tragedy as a positive thing, an expansion of life and imagination. He sees it in how Mikhoyles played King Lear. Even in his interpretation of Lear, he was optimistic. Traditionally, Lear's trajectory, the arc of Lear's story in the play, was from the top to the bottom. So the end of the play is the downfall of Lear. And, and his interpretation was different from bottom to top. So at the end of the play, Lear finally learns the meaning. He, he acquires the meaning. He learns something important about life. He finally uh, becoming a human. So for Mikhoyles, it was the story of becoming, not, not like failing. And then I would say the same about him, about Mikhoyles himself. Maybe the only triumph Mikhoyles had during a life where he was perpetually used by others was that deep awareness of his own mission, the source of his inner integrity. The rescued Yiddish poet Sutzkever 
also remembered Mikhoil's performing his heart-stopping role as Lear. But Suskever's memory is a bit less uplifting. Here's Yiddish scholar and translator Justin Kami again, reading from Suskever's memories of Mikhoil's. Binyomin Zuskin, who idolized his older friend, told me that whenever Mikhoil's played this role, he would think of the death of his first wife, whom he loved passionately. And once, after a performance of Lear, Michols remained in character, wandering the city with outstretched hands. He was found the next day half-frozen in a snowbank. Whenever I think of Michols, I imagine him in the previous scene, in the field at night in the midst of a storm, his hand insanely slapping his forehead. Such was the fate of this great artist, of majesty betrayed, when on 13 January 1948, shadows from Moscow chased him down in Minsk and turned red from his blood. One of the few filmed recordings of Mikhoyles in the theater is from his performance as King Lear. It's one of his best known roles, but he had mixed feelings about it. After all, King Lear isn't a Jewish play. As I watched it once on the Night of the Murdered Poets, I noticed a line that Mikhoyles says as Lear, a line that doesn't appear at all in Shakespeare's play. As his daughter stands hopelessly before him, just moments before her death and his, Mikhoyles insists to her in Yiddish, We will outlive them. Adventures with Dead Jews is brought to you by Tablet Studios and Soul Shop. It's created and written by me, Dara Horn, and produced and edited by Josh Cross and Robert Scaramuccia. The managing producer is Sara Fredman Ader, and the executive producers are Liel Leibovitz, Stephanie Butnick, Gabby Weinberg, and Dan Luxemburg. We hope you'll rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts so that more people can join us on our adventures. My new book, People Love Dead Jews is published by W.W. Norton and is available wherever books are sold. It's also available as an audiobook from Recorded Books. I hope you'll check it out. For this episode, special thanks to Vasily Shedrin and Justin Cami. You can find more information on their work in the show notes, along with other sources to learn more about topics from today's show. Next week, we'll be traveling to medieval Egypt with the help of two sets of genius identical twins. I'm Dara Horn, and I'll see you then for more Adventures with Dead Jews. <laughs>